Welcome to the After Talk at Universe University. I'm your host, Chris Grant. My producer, Blake, and I hope that our listeners will enjoy the second half of our discussion on the future of manned space travel. However, we would also like to apologize for the background noise in this After Talk. Our next-door neighbors were particularly noisy during our recording, but our After Talk discussion was simply too interesting to leave out. Population fitness, as in um, both in health and in the the size of the population that should go. Um, this I thought this was, was an important point because you do have to select the right people to go, and eventually at some point, if you're looking to build a colony, you have to be able to select a large number of people who can all deal with the rigors of space and living on Mars and the difficulties of, of living in co- close quarters and all these different things. Absolutely. Um, so I, I don't know if you even have a thought on that as to like what the selection process should be for large groups of individuals. And So we've seen a good analog for this, mm. and that is Antarctica. Okay. And there's a lot of research that has been done on this, and there have been psychologists who are then looking at the people that we send to Antarctica, what is mm-hmm. their, what is their psychological history? How do they do with others? And they found, we say this in the episode as well. We found that being introverted is good. Uh, being able problem to, solving, problem solving, being able to, and of course there's the credentials of, we would want the person to be a good engineer or a good right. scientist to begin with, mm-hmm. uh, but not every great engineer or great scientist would be equipped for a journey to Antarctica or a journey to Mars. Uh, so that's, you know, those are most definitely uh, factors. Some level of empathy. Some level of empathy. You know what they do? Uh, there's something called high seas in Hawaii. Mm-hmm. It's not the the beverage that we all consumed as a child, but... Uh, it's a Mars simulation, and right. Robert Zubrin's Mars Society does Mars simulations as well. And those simulations consist of a group of people living in a funny-looking building, often in a desert, dry, arid, rocky area mm-hmm. in Hawaii. It's like a, a field of dried lava that looks very Mars-like, mm-hmm. and the crews for months on end work together with each other and live together in this bubble. And anytime they leave, they have to put on these fake spacesuits yeah. and they can't stray too far because they'll say, oh, I set my stopwatch and my oxygen's going to be running out if we go too much further. So let's gather some rocks and get back soon, team. I've seen footage. It's pretty funny because they, they, they've just kind of like cobbled together something that would be really annoying to put on and take off, but it looks nothing like a spacesuit. It's just like... It kind of looks like they're 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 wearing like a, a cat house on their, like, <laughs> or like a fishbowl. They're like, like I'm putting put the... like uh, opened up uh, toilet paper tubes on their arms to like make like a space. 
and it's like you're on Earth, you have breathable air, so right. it's like, why would you put on a spacesuit? Right. But um, and it's often done on a budget. You know, I, I spoke with Robert Zubrin. This didn't make it into our interview, but I asked him about the Mars Society, and he said, "We don't really have paid employees." Right. He's like, "Well, there there is someone that we pay." But, like, it's so that she can buy groceries because she's living in the Mars, like, bubble right, habitat. Right. Like, that's what we're – that's the money that we're shelling out for that. Uh, but anyway, they talked about there are often conflicts between crew members. Of course. But they've kind of started – they're in the early phases of, of coming up with what sort of crews do we want? What's What kind of crews are compatible with other crews and you have these things called leadership and followership styles mm. where some crews would do so you used to be in the military and they talk about some crews do very good with sort of an autocratic military style leader hierarchy yeah a hierarchy where the leader kind of gives orders to people and you can imagine uh, a military style operation might be very useful for the first missions to Mars where you have a commander who says and we've all seen this in movies I'm giving you a direct order, and I'm ordering you to blah, blah, blah. So there has been a research done into that, and particularly with Antarctica, you have a very, very big sampling size because a lot of people have lived and worked in Antarctica. And really, that the, there have been conflicts, but it's very rare to see circumstances where uh, people get into physical altercations or people, someone tries to strangle someone else. Like these people, it is not like Jack Nicholson in The Shining right. every time we winter over in Antarctica. It's difficult. It's atypical, but people manage to or get through it. The Hunt for it. Red October more. Or The Hunt for yeah. we could We could reference yeah. any number of, 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 but we could reference any number of like fictional works, but at the end of the day, it's stressful. It's difficult. Right. I don't want to tell people that it's a, a walk in the park. And many people come away from it saying, wow, that was that was really, really difficult. But it's also not like people are just committing suicide because they're so bereft of hope. Right. But And then there's the other side of that, like the commune sort of decentralized sort of format where maybe you have... The scientists grouping and they deal with what scientists deal with and then you've got the engineers and the engineers deal with what they deal with and then the pilots and everything like that and everyone's kind of so spread out before i did this podcast i read this wonderful book called see if i can remember the title correctly if you look at our audio podcast episode on uh most recent one mm -hmm. on Mars. It's the episode where I've got narration. We do music. We do right. all these bells and whistles. But I cited in the description a book called, I think it's uh, from Life in Isolation from Antarctica to Outer Space. Mm -hmm. And there's a it's just a collection of different essays about, some of it's about Antarctica. Some of it is about uh, people living on nuclear submarines uh, for the American military and other mm. countries' uh, militaries during the Cold War. But there's a piece that talks about the fact that military leaders or naval leaders and captains had to be constantly interacting with and working alongside people who were scientists and naturalists and biologists. Because uh, do, you, do you recall a movie called Master and Commander, Far Side of the World with Russell Crowe? Never watched it. 
But you, you recall the movie. Yes. So Russell Cr- Russell Crowe is a naval commander, and they mm-hmm. take this wooden sailing ship to the Galapagos Islands. Right. And even at this historical time period in this movie, it's recognized that the Galapagos Islands would be a great place to stop and gather specimens. So there were voyages of scientific exploration, just as there were voyages of military conquest mm-hmm. at this time. And the two uh, overlap, particularly right. in the British Empire. And we talked a little bit about, we did an episode about comets and asteroids, where we talked about the amazing career of Edmund Halley, mm-hmm. uh, who discovered Halley's Comet. Halley's Comet is named after him. And he was actually the first person in, I think, the history of the British Empire to be a scientist who was given command of a British naval ship. Hmm. And it didn't go very well. <laughs> so I can't really speak to that as I'm not a expert yeah. on Edmund Halley, but it got to the point where his crew... British officers, British naval officers, were on the edge of mutiny. Yeah. Because, and maybe it was because they resented the fact that, that a scientist had been put in charge as the sort of the captain of this, or the commander of this British naval ship. Or maybe it was the fact that Edmund Halley was kind of a dickhead. Well, I, I think leadership is a skill. It is. And I think, I think Halley was a leader. In his own right. Right. But that doesn't mean that he was necessarily the perfect person to command a a naval ship while out at sea. Right. And so uh, there's this wonderful essay. I'll see if I can post it. I'll post it in the description of this episode so that people can see it. Just go in your YouTube browser, look down below. It'll be there. But it'll um, be of this essay that I read. It was a wonderful essay talking about how initially there were a lot of struggles between, unsurprisingly, between people in the military and people who were scientists Mm -hmm. and naturalists who had to work together. And there was this push and pull where, understandably, the naval personnel, they want to make sure everybody comes out of this alive. Mm-hmm. And nobody dies in the process. Nobody does anything stupid. Right. Nobody risks their lives or risks the other crew members' right. lives on gathering a rock or a seashell that they think might have some scientific importance. But also the scientists being willing to apply some pressure towards their superiors and mm-hmm. saying, this could be really important. Really, really important. Hmm. Great Britain... As, a, as an empire could boast that we solved some very big conundrums right. in the history of science because we gathered the data that we gathered right here. And maybe it's important that we take some risks to go out. And that's the carrot that they're trying to throw out to try to motivate the military people to do their jobs and to try to follow along with whatever mission they're putting for. Yeah, it's, I, it, I bet it's interesting. Uh, one other factor, and we've, as I said, we've done two Mars series mm-hmm. on our podcast. We had one that was like a two-part podcast series we did over a year ago, and then we did this most recent one. But on the one we did over a year ago, we t- I talked about uh, the fact that radiation affects men and women differently. Mm-hmm. And we can talk about radiation. Radiation also affects older men differently than younger men. Someone put out the idea of while ago, it was years ago, 
of saying, do you remember the movie Space Cowboys with Clint Eastwood and Tommy Lee Jones where they're all like launching into space? It's a bunch of old guys launching into space. That's the premise of the movie. So Space Cowboys is an older crew launching into space to to repair an older satellite that's you know very much out of date. And it's a little bit like the right stuff. It's uh, it's an entertaining enough movie. But someone said, well, what if we sent a bunch of men to Mars who were 65 years old? Then the radiation would affect them differently than a bunch of men who were 25 years old. And by the way, if you have an increased risk of getting cancer in 30 years, that's something that if you're 25, you're like, oh, no, that sounds terrible. And if you're 65, you're like, well, I'll be dead by then. Well, and there's um, interesting new... <coughs> scientific studies that are going around right now about extending telomere length which affects it's a, a look it up and do your own studying but uh, essentially telomere length can if, affect whether or not you're going to have cancer because if it's longer your cells are able to con continue reproducing it's a complicated process well and, and in a nutshell as i understand it yeah. i shouldn't talk i shouldn't talk too much about genetics or, or yeah, biology right. but in a nutshell uh as we age the length of our telomeres shorten right so and that's by design because if they're too long then that indicate that allows there to be markers of cancer so, interesting interesting yeah it's very complicated strange thing so i don't know what that would actually if that would actually help humanity unless we could actually figure out how to cure cancer yeah but but i do think that um age and gender could indeed play a role as well if there are a lot of uh, concerns about radiation certainly and that plays into my next point of reproduction because at some point you've got to be able to have enough genetic diversity that you're not creating some kind of bland uh, colony that is going to have trouble existing for long periods of time. Yeah, well, and again, it gets back to the difference between a city or a colony mm -hmm. as opposed to an outpost right. or a base or a base of operations. Well, and one of the nice things about the United... Well, I wouldn't say nice things, but if we're talking about reproduction and genetic diversity is that when they got to North America, there were other human beings here so that they could immediately start having a, a wider genetic diversity. Are you talking about Native Americans? Yes. Yes. Sure. Well, I don't know how many Native Americans and European colonists were interbreeding. Obviously, mm -hmm. it happened. Sure. But I don't know the statistics on that but i'm but, saying if it was just the people that were on that fort that might have been a different situation so yes and, the, and there is something interestingly enough uh that i read about many years ago called hybrid vigor where mm. if a person from japan has a child with a person from germany mm -hmm. that you actually get that that a lot of the positive traits from those two people from those two different uh, groups uh, sort of, it's, it's a very... Get transmitted into the... Yeah, it's whereas, so take it in the other direction, and we could talk about the fact that uh, many royal families in hundreds of years ago in Europe 
were so narrow in terms right. of their amount of genetic diversity. Right. If you have to marry your first or second cousin in order to marry royalty, then you're not going to have offspring that, you know, there, there are going mm -hmm. to be genetic abnormalities. You know, it's, it's the reason why it's not a good idea to have children with your cousin. Right. Probably a lot of reasons that's a bad idea, but genetically speaking, it's a road to nowhere. So one of the more interesting thoughts that I have had, that I had about this was what the political system might look like. Um, we live in a, a globe with so many different ways for human beings to organize themselves. So the real question is, who gets to Mars first to set up what that organization should look like? And is that a, a global pact outside of Earth? that is international in a, in a sense, but also its own worldly body. Yeah, you know, we did an episode on uh, this thing called Project Orion, and that's uh, different from the Orion space capsule, which we're in the process of, of testing now that might very well carry the first astronauts back to the moon. And the Orion, the Project Orion that I'm referring to was a nuclear-powered spacecraft mm -hmm. that would go to other planets. Uh, and Mars was a destination that they had in mind. And had we actually built these massive nuclear-powered spacecraft that the United States Air Force was seriously considering building, then they talked about landing on Mars with a United Nations flag on the side of the vehicle and perhaps even inviting Soviet cosmonauts to go along on the, the voyage. And so I think it's a question of, will the first crews to land on Mars, will the first people with, working with SpaceX and Elon Musk, and I think if anybody's going to be the first to do it, it's probably SpaceX at this right. point, will they welcome people from China, people from Russia, people from countries all around the world, mm -hmm. or will they pretty much have a crew that consists largely of men and women who work for SpaceX, who are, you know, of from north america I, yeah, does I don't it know. become its own privatized sort of rollerball world you know where welcome to coke coca-cola city or like yeah where spacex know. just runs everything right and, and the interesting thing that people have pointed out about president donald trump is that he's the first president in american history to have had no political or military experience. There mm -hmm. have definitely been people who had military experience who became political leaders. Right. But the thing about politics is, you know, you have to run for re-election. There is some accountability. There are some checks and balances. Mm -hmm. Obviously, political leaders abuse their authority. But they said the when analyzing Donald Trump's style, or even looking at someone like George Washington or Dwight Eisenhower, who was a mm -hmm. military leader, is corporations and the military have something in common and that is they're not a democracy right and it's you you have autocratic sort of leaders mm -hmm. who are able to order people to do this or order people to do that and there's not a lot of accountability that mm -hmm. that elon musk might be responsible to the shareholders of spacex but like every employee at spacex or every person in the United States can't go to a ballot box and vote him out of office. Right. I, I don't know why they would want to, but they, they don't have that option. Right. 
And so if it's just really just SpaceX, this is SpaceX's territory, then uh, in that case, it would be SpaceX right. making the rules. Now, I, I don't think it – I think at a certain point when you're really struggling to survive on a new frontier, and I think history will attest to this, then you could you could argue that what's happening there is people are in such dire circumstances, struggling day to day to have enough food and water mm-hmm. that – and for nothing else to go wrong, that – the concerns of like how we make all the decisions mm-hmm. or who those decisions rest with, that becomes a, a bit more of a struggle. And that is to say that we have, once again, Antarctica as our kind of a test bed to mm-hmm. show for over half a century we've had human beings in Antarctica and sometimes as many as uh, over a thousand at McMurdo Station. There has never been a coup or a hostage situation or a revolution or anything like that where mm-hmm. people took over and they said, you know what, we're tired of the way, you know, you people at McMurdo mm-hmm. are running McMurdo and we're going to hold you at gunpoint and we're going to force you to to make our governmental system what McMurdo station is going to be for the next because because there's not enough people there and also people which I think with Elon Musk we'll see this as well is that people will have the option at some point to return home Mm, if starships if hundreds of starships are going back and forth then the more tempting option rather than saying I'm going to stay in this really difficult Mm. environment that is difficult to live and work in where we're breathing recycled air and we're living in these close quarter habitats it's much more tempting to say, I'm just going to go back to right, Earth fair. rather than to say, well, I'm going to form a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that sure. all men are created equal. You know, that becomes less likely. But it, it gets to the question of if we have a city of a million people on mm-hmm. Mars, then that question will come up. And if we have a city of 500,000 people on Mars, that, that question mm-hmm will definitely come up. So it's not something that's inconceivable, but it is like we're kind of, we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit. That's how I feel about it. It'd be a good question for Robert Zuber next time we, Dr. Robert Zuber next time we see him. I think it would be a, an even better question for Elon Musk. If sure, we had, had too. The, If I had the chance to ask that to Elon Musk. And you talk about children you know, being born on Mars and genetic diversity of the population and all these other things. But the reality is that we know we don't have a lot of data. We don't have any data on what low gravity or Mars gravity is going to do to the human body. But we know that zero gravity or microgravity mm-hmm. on the International Space Station is, you know, it's very bad. It causes the human body to deteriorate even in the course of six months, even in the course of a year. Mm-hmm. Adult human beings' bodies start to deteriorate, and if they have to walk around and do physical tasks and exert themselves on Earth, that that becomes difficult. Now, you can recover from this with the aid of physical therapy and things like that. Your, your body adjusts. But if that's the challenge for adult human beings, I think rather than genetic diversity or who's going to be interbreeding with whom, Mm -hmm. the bigger challenge is what happens to a fetus in one-third Earth gravity as it's developing. 
and what happens to the first children born on Mars as they're growing up and going right. through a multitude of different physical changes. And that's assuming they're completely healthy. What happens in low gravity? And then there's the concern of radiation. Mm -hmm. uh, so we spoke with Dr. Robert Zubrin about radiation, and he was... Uh, he worked for uh, the Washington State, I think it was like the Board of Radiation Protection or something for radiation workers. He's got a, a pretty impressive set of credentials. Mm -hmm. And I'm convinced that this is a bold statement to make, but I'm convinced that every time we hear people from NASA or the European Space Agency saying we can't yet go to Mars until we solve the problem of radiation. We'd love to send astronauts to Mars if not, if not for this terrible problem of radiation. Mm -hmm. Radiation is so dangerous. Radiation is dangerous, but I'm convinced that these concerns, these alarmist, uh, these alarmist predictions that people make, I'm convinced it's largely bullshit. Hmm. Now, I'm convinced it's largely bullshit in the sense that an astronaut could survive the trip to Mars, could survive on the surface of Mars, could survive the return trip to Mars... Regard, you know, in terms of radiation, mm -hmm. if we're just looking at radiation and, right. and cosmic rays and coronal mass ejections from the sun, that that's something that we could do. But and, it's the gravity that you think is the biggest concern. Well, it's the it's the low gravity of Mars. I don't think that's the biggest concern. No, I think mm -hmm. it's the for the health of children, though. I think it's for the health of, for the develop for the development of children for children mm -hmm. to develop on Mars in a healthy way physically the way they develop on Earth in mm -hmm. a healthy way physically I think prolonged exposure to radiation and prolonged mm -hmm. exposure to low gravity mm -hmm. of which we have no data on regarding children and we have no data on regarding humans or animals regarding one development in one third gravity I think that's that's a concern and. We Maybe know, they just grow really tall. That's possible. Like Avatar, like, you know. Yeah, that's possible that they do. We we really don't know. We know that on Earth, uh, there are many children born all around the world that have very difficult lives because <laughs> there was some anomaly during their development mm -hmm. in the womb. Yep. Or some sort of genetic anomaly. Sure. Something passed down something obscure. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot that can go wrong for human beings, you know, genetically and, and in our development that makes life quite a struggle. And life on Mars is going to be quite a struggle. And so to then say we're going to take children or fetuses, these very frail beings, and subject them to one-third Earth gravity and a whole lot of radiation, mm -hmm. and, well, they're probably just going to be, you know, more or less the same as people on Earth— uh, I think there's a lot that could go wrong there. So what do you there. know about uh, Ukrainian birth rates after Chernobyl? I haven't read a lot about it. That would be a great case study. It would be. It sure would be. To see what radiation did to, to the children after that. Like parents ha having that amount exposed to them. Because that would be like, that could either cut out or open up your argument for because I, I do know just to be safe i do know that there are a lot of people with really bad genetic abnormalities that like oh yeah screwed them up and there, there's really um, bad there's hiroshima and nagasaki right, right right there are um children very sadly 
born in that have been born and some of them have been born relatively recently in Vietnam who have seen the effects of Agent Orange. Right. Well, there's we're Gulf, talking about I'm talking about radiation, right? Right. Um there's Gulf War syndrome. Gulf War syndrome was there was some to my understanding there was some like radioactive material used mm-hmm. in munitions. Depleted uranium. Yes, correct. Depleted uranium. Um so there are a lot of terrible examples but the thing is uh so i'm simultaneously expressing my concerns about the mm-hmm. effects of radiation while dismissing them right and and that is what we know about radiation just to be perfectly clear what we know about radiation is that being exposed to a large amount of radiation for a relatively short period of time is something that's actually not so bad that you can survive from that and sometimes people's rates of cancer go up but it's like wow we just exposed you to a bunch of radiation blake and now you have a two percent increased risk of cancer as long as you have the correct shielding to try to mitigate that radiation like if it's high enough and it's literally burning your skin then you're kind of screwed of course it's a sliding scale right right and so but there are some tremendously high amounts of radiation in the van allen belts for instance sure the apollo astronauts pass through the van allen belts they had shielding, that's what I'm saying. Well, you say that they had shielding, Blake. They passed through in some very, very lightweight vehicles. And you talk about shielding, the skin of the lunar module was in some portions about as thick as a few layers of tin foil. Hmm. And it was, if you took a screwdriver to the lunar module right. and stabbed it, mm-hmm. it would have gone right through. Mm-hmm. That is how flimsy the lunar module was that landed on the moon. The moon has no magnetosphere. And the Van Allen belts are these belts of radiation where the Earth's magnetosphere, this invisible shield around the Earth, has actually trapped large amounts of radiation from mm. the sun, from coronal mass ejections from the sun. It's trapped in this layer around the Earth because the Earth's magnetic field shields us from a lot of the intense, terrible radiation, which right. is why Earth is such a hospitable planet for life. Right. Going to the moon, the astronauts had to pass through those Van Allen belts with all this trapped radiation, mm-hmm. very high exposure to radiation, mm-hmm. but for only a couple of hours. And mm-hmm. so a lot of moon landing conspiracy theorists will say nobody could have right. survived the Van Allen radiation belts. And that is that, well, most people could survive it for a few hours but if that lasted a few days or a few weeks, you know, it could be absolutely lethal. So moon landing conspiracy theorists are not necessarily wrong when they're like, there's lethal radiation in the right. Van Allen belts. Well, yeah, if you're going to hang out in there for a long period of time, mm-hmm. but if you're going to shoot through them in a couple of hours, then it's not uh, quite as bad. So keep in mind, astronauts are on the moon in this vehicle in the vacuum of space with a couple of layers of sure we'll call it shielding to use your word i'm not i'm you know i but it's not much and then you step out in a spacesuit and it's even less sure and enough. um but also to be fair if there had been a coronal mass ejection if there had been a catastrophic solar storm erupting on the sun and those astronauts had been in this flimsy little lunar module or if they'd been in these even flimsier spacesuits mm-hmm. Uh, they could have in- encountered some very devastating mm-hmm. levels of radiation. And we were just fortunate that that did not happen for mm-hmm. them at the time when they were you know, exploring the, you know, the surface of the moon. So there, there's something in the way. And it's always good to have something in the way if there's radiation. Right. It's like when you... Um, well, it depends on the type, too. It depends on the type, too. But it's like if you're at the dentist, they give you that little vest or whatever to put on while they take x-rays of mm-hmm. your teeth. So... 
Um, radiation is dangerous, and I don't want to suggest that it's that it's not right. dangerous. But what I was the point that I was going to make is that radiation is very very dangerous over a long period of time. And you mm-hmm. know what? I would even say that high doses of radiation for periods of a couple of minutes or a couple of hours those are way easier for the human body to deal with than comparatively lower doses of radiation spread out over an entire lifetime. Right. Fair. And, and that's the problem is if mm-hmm. you're getting radiation that like, oh, well, this radiation is not so bad. If you lived if you lived here for, you know, a year and you were right. exposed to that level of radiation, it wouldn't affect your body the same way as if you lived there for 50 years. Right. And if you have a colony on Mars, you're going to be living there forever right and so one of the things they talk about in the article um that i sent you i think the the title of the article is human beings will human beings will never colonize mars it's a very pessimistic title we can link that down there in the the description as well but uh one of the things that they talk about is like okay some people have proposed let's bury uh martian habitats underground right you bury it deep enough underground then then that's some real shielding right right there that'll keep human beings from uh, really seeing the full brunt of those effects. But then what you run into in Antarctica, one of the reasons Antarctica is such a taxing environment for human beings is for as long as five or six months out of the year, it's completely dark, 24 hours a day, seven days a week mm-hmm. in Antarctica. And that is very disruptive to human beings' circadian rhythms. You had a study called Mars 500 in Russia where they had a couple of guys that they sealed for, uh, I think it was just five, it was 500 days. It was over a year. They sealed them in this environment that was meant to mimic a Mars mission. And there were, there were definitely, they, they celebrated holidays together. They shared meals together. They worked together. Everything went pretty well. You know, they didn't end up killing each other. Again, it wasn't Jack Nicholson and Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. But a lot of them reported difficulties sleeping. Hmm. <coughs> so I will bring up the last of the the concerns. Um, and that is the financial situation. I think in the past we've been looking at, oh, there's all this money to be able to put towards NASA and all these private space companies that are looking to do things for us. But now... Um, we went for we basically went up another third in debt over the course of three months for our our country and a lot of other countries sure. around the world. So, what does the money situation look like, and how do we combat that? Well, that's a difficult question. Yeah, and uh, I'm not I'm not an economist and I'm not an accountant, but I can tell you that human space exploration is very, very expensive. Robotic exploration is expensive in its own right, but I suspect that that has been going on for a long time through recessions and recoveries, through highs and lows, and it will continue for some time to come. SpaceX has a business model where Elon Musk wants to turn some kind of a profit Mm -hmm. from delivering astronauts to the International Space Station for instance, that that's not a gesture of goodwill on Elon Musk's part, that he delivers cargo and hopefully very soon crew members to the International Space Station 
to make money and turn mm -hmm. a profit. So a lot of that has to do with the business model of SpaceX rather than the funds available in the United States government. Right. And I certainly don't care to make any prophecies about the the future of the United States economy or the U.S. national debt. And we're definitely in an atypical scenario here where uh, the current pandemic that we're facing, it's, it's nothing to... It's nothing to, that we should take in a, a cavalier fashion. I don't think we should dismiss it. It's not a hoax. It's not a conspiracy theory. It is taking place and people are dying. Well, it's just all of that aside, the economic impacts that it's going to have are far... Yes, and you and I have discussed this before, that the ripple effect of the coronavirus, the novel coronavirus, that's going to go on for years to come. Mm -hmm. uh, and yet... In May, we might very well launch astronauts to the International Space Station from American soil mm -hmm. for the first time in a long time. And NASA's biggest concern is saying, don't show up and watch the launch. Don't <laughs> gather in large groups to watch the launch. Right, right. Uh, which I think is, is, is kind of funny. So I, I don't know uh, what the future holds, but I, I did make a note here in my, my notebook here. That uh, China this summer will launch the first robotics, their first robotic spacecraft to Mars. It won't be hmm. the first robotic spacecraft to Mars because the United States has had several, but it's going to be, they're going to become, if all goes well, the second country in history to land a rover on the planet Mars. They have battle bots, Mars, <laughs> U USA versus China. That would be funny. Um <laughs> But I, I bring that up in all seriousness. China has had their own struggles mm. with the novel coronavirus. It, ori sure. it originated in China. They were hit very hard by it. And yet they're still moving forward. And I think the China... Supposedly. Wow. Yeah. We'll see what happens. We'll see if they launch their rover in June or July. Right. Um, but I, th I think they're going to do it. Whether that rover lands safely on the surface of Mars, that's much harder to predict right. because even... Yeah. Even other nations like India and Israel that have uh, launched spacecraft to land on the moon mm -hmm. have failed at that endeavor because it's very difficult. Yeah. So, uh, but what I was going to say is that it seems like China has this attitude of we're just going to keep pressing forward and we're just going right. to keep going on with what we're keep doing what we're doing. The wet markets in Wuhan are open. You know, these these markets with all sorts of strange animals and question, questionable health you know practices, they've opened them up again. So it's very they just much renamed them to farmers markets. <laughs> Kidding. I don't know that. But yeah. But so they're very much moving on with what they're doing. And one of the things that came to my mind uh, during all of this, just as you're pointing out, I thought to myself, well, how is the space program going to be affected? by everything that's going on in the world. Sure. A, a global pandemic is a very serious concern. And then I thought to myself, uh, a fact that a lot of people forget about is when we landed human beings on the moon, we were pretty much at the peak of the Vietnam War. Mm -hmm. and, this, yeah. and we're talking about a war that claimed the lives of tens of thousands of American troops, just as the, the novel coronavirus has claimed the lives of tens of thousands of Americans. So it was an interesting example of the fact that we as a nation mm -hmm. can 
walk and chew gum at the same time. Maybe that's a poor analogy, sure. but it's exam an example of fact. Um, I had a political science professor in college who, who said to us, you know, a lot of people forget the fact that Abraham Lincoln, as president, was pushing really hard to build the Transcontinental Railroad in the middle of the United States Civil hmm. War. That's a good point. And so that's another example. That wasn't a light endeavor either. Yeah. The yeah. United States Civil War or the Vietnam War, to a lesser extent, right. were these endeavors that involved tremendous loss of life that were devastating to our country, our infrastructure, American families. They were very wide-reaching. And so it's it's a question, though, of national willpower. Right. Of do we say as a country... Uh, well, we have to focus on this right now yeah. because we don't have time for that. Right. Or are we a country that says we're going to do great things, we're going to do big things, there will be temporary setbacks, and there are things that we need to prioritize. Right. But. Yeah. I, I just don't know. And we'll see. I'm hoping that nothing gets put on the back burner that we're we're planning on. I, happening with Ar the Project Artemis and other things that are going on with... On on a side note, I don't think we're going to land human beings on the moon of course. in the year 2024. But that's that's not new. I'm just saying, yeah. with everything that's going on, I wonder if that's really going to delay things. But who knows? Yeah, and, and it's impossible for me to predict, but I would say that short of civilization collapsing, I think it is possible... For us to continue uh, pursuing human space exploration, even in the midst of a pandemic, even in extreme circumstances. So my trick worked where I brought up all of the things that I thought weren't going to get us to Mars, and you ended up defending that we would end up going to Mars. So that was fun. I enjoyed this. Yeah, so there there are a few distinctions there that I, I would definitely like to make, um, and, and one is that um, Dr. Zubrin is, is one of my personal heroes. So I, I think the world of him, Elon Musk is a man who's more successful and more brilliant than I think I will ever be in my life. So I have respect for him too. Um, but I think I'm probably a little bit more skeptical of some of Elon Musk's very outlandish ideas than I am of, uh, Robert Zubrin's pragmatism. Mm. So that, that's, um, that's one aspect of it, but I think the other aspect of it is making a distinction between getting human beings to Mars, which has been a very difficult, very long uphill battle, where, you know, speaking to Dr. Zubrin, it's like he genuinely believes that had we gone with the Von Braun plan, we would have had human beings uh, landing on Mars for the first time in 19... 81. Mm -hmm. And uh, Dr. Zubrin also says that had we landed human beings on Mars in 1981 and eventually in 10 years or 20 years begun the process of colonization, that perhaps we would have had uh, the first Martian high school students graduating from high school this year. Seems a little extreme. It's mind-blowing. Yeah. But what i what i would so i'd make a distinction just in in personality in message in pragmatism versus dreams of the future mm -hmm. between robert zubrin and elon musk mm -hmm. and uh getting to mars is going to be very difficult but i think we can do it i think the first human beings will walk on mars 
uh, not only within our lifetimes, but within the next 10 to 20 years. I'm hopeful about that, although by no means certain. Right. And then there's this other idea of colonies on Mars as opposed to tiny like outposts or bases on Mars. I do not believe that we're going to see within our lifetimes a city of a million people on Mars. I don't think that's going to happen. I don't think it's going to happen within the next 100 years, maybe within the next 200, maybe within the next 300. I think it's a goal for the future, and I think it's one that we should uh, aspire to. And right. it's something that I wrote about in a recent blog post. You know, university, universe, university.space is not just uh, a collection of all of our work and the audio podcasts that we've done. It's also a blog uh, where I have several pieces of writing on there. And they'll, when this video hits YouTube, there will definitely be uh, a link to that blog post as well. So I think it will happen. And I think we should take the steps to make it happen. But it took a long time for Europeans to colonize North America. You know, it, it would be like Christopher Columbus returning from the New World. And if he were Elon Musk, he would say to Queen Isabella, okay, well, I just want 500 more ships. Right. And I want to have a city of a million people here in the New World by, you know, 1510. And I think we can do it by 1510 if you can just give me enough supplies and people and we can just set things up. I think it'll be this glorious new place right. that everybody will want to live. That would have been unrealistic, mm -hmm. but it would also have been foolish to say, oh, well, that will never happen, Christopher Columbus. Right. That did happen right. in North America, but it takes time. Mm -hmm. And I, I talked to uh, a friend of mine, Nick Conant, uh, from the Fisk Planetarium, who's in one of our af after talks for uh, our episode about harbingers of, harbingers of Cataclysm. And he said, oh, he said 500 years from now, he's told me, he's like, I could see cities of a million people on Mars. He was like, that's plausible. But maybe it's a little ridiculous yeah. to to imagine them in the year 2050 yeah. on Mars. And so I'd make a big distinction between colonies and cities on Mars versus outposts on Mars. And I've said it before, I'll say it again, a outpost of a thousand people living and working on Mars, that would be a tremendous victory yeah. for humanity in expanding and becoming a multi-planetary species. And it's it's nothing for us to be disappointed in. Sure. Uh, but yeah I, yeah, I I think I've addressed addressed those distinctions thoroughly. But, uh, but yeah, maybe I'm more optimistic than I give myself credit for. I don't know. Yeah. Anything in closing? Or do you feel like that was the closing? Well, no. I, I feel like if you guys made it to the end of this video, then I would certainly recommend checking out our audio podcast, which we have done on Mars. Most recently, it's just called Life on Mars at universeuniversity.space. But, uh, and our other programs are, are there as well, and that's great. And also, if you haven't uh, been able to check out our long-form conversation with the brilliant Dr. Robert Zubrin, uh, check that as well. Check out that as well, because that was just... Uh, it was just mind blowing and yeah. it was humbling and it was, it was an honor. It was an honor. It was great for me to be able to speak with uh, someone who's a personal hero of mine, uh, yeah. just a, a brilliant man uh, with knowledge in so many different disciplines. And uh, it was great to be able to speak with him and it was great to be able to 
take this time to just chat about, you know, to sort of decompress, decompress and uh, sort of process all of the many different and interesting points that um, that we had. And although I look forward to the Artemis program being a success and human beings returning to the moon, I want to go on the record as saying that this these beautiful pieces of artwork on the wall uh, here, we've got a piece of artwork and we've got a lunar map from a, a Kuiper Atlas. Uh, I don't want anyone to mistake that as uh, me feeling like the moon is more important as a destination than Mars, because I believe that Mars is the next frontier for human civilization and we should set our sights on Mars. Uh, but that being said, I'm an, I'm an all of the above type guy. So I think we should have robotic probes to the outer planets. I think we should eventually send human beings back to the moon. And I think our top priority in the coming decade should be Mars. Awesome. Well, thank you.